This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. It's a great pleasure to introduce our next speaker, um, Dr. Garrett Rowe. And uh, uh, Dr. Rowe has been with us for three years and been trying very hard to convince him to call me Francis as opposed to Dr. Yao, and I failed. Uh, uh, Dr. Rowe is a brilliant young surgeon who's an absolute delight to work with. And last year, uh, we're very happy to have Dr. Rowe come here and talk about normal thermic perfusion. We got great feedback, so we're asking Garrett to come here again, expanding on the topic a little bit, to talk more about um, you know, improving organ al- utilization. Garrett, thank you. Thanks, Dr. Yao. That was excellent. So I've been given strict marching orders to stay on time, and we're already a little bit late. So I've already trimmed this back pretty far, but I'll, I'll go as quickly as we can here. So I'm going to talk about utilization of higher-risk organs, or what some people might talk about as extended criteria, deceased donor organs, or marginal donors. But Today I hope to really dispel some of the negative connotation that some of those words that uh, bring and hope to answer some of your questions about, about these higher risk organs and what the risk actually is. I don't have anything to disclose. So I thought we could start with a case. I was on call a few weeks ago and I got a liver offer from a small town in Washington. I was called about a liver that was slipping down the list and they were worried it wasn't going to be transplanted. So our first recipient was number 60 on the list and the surgeons for the 59 people in front of us had turned it down already. It was a 62-year-old donor, had died of a cardiac arrest at home. The donor was hep C antibody positive but nat negative and the family vehemently denied any history of hepatitis C So I asked some more questions, and it turned out the donor did use injection drugs a few times about 40 years ago, and no recent risk factors in the last four decades. And normal liver function tests. They were diabetic but had a normal hemoglobin A1C. So can I ask you guys in the audience what you guys would think about, what would you think about the hepatitis C testing, and what might you tell a potential recipient in this situation? someone who maybe was exposed to hepatitis C four decades ago, antibody positive but not negative. I presumed that it was someone who was exposed but not infected or infected but cleared. I didn't have a hepatitis C viral load, but I, I thought that our recipient would have a very low risk of contracting hepatitis C from this liver, although it was listed as a hepatitis C positive liver. So I was still interested to hear more. The donor surgeon went to the operating room and biopsied the liver at our request. Uh, The liver biopsy looked basically completely normal. There was a a little bit of inflammation, but that's almost always there. Otherwise, it looks beautiful. The donor surgeon described a little bit of plaque in the celiac axis, but that doesn't really tend to bother us because we don't have to use that. So that didn't bother us, and the liver looked beautiful to the donor surgeon. was small, not fatty. So... We had a recipient who was in need of transplant, a 53-year-old who had uh, hepatitis, uh, sorry, had alcoholic cirrhosis and liver cancer and ascites. 
So they had received local regional therapy but couldn't receive any more local regional therapy due to the ascites. So we had to make the decision, should we take this high-risk liver or not? Uh, I looked at all the individual risks, and we decided to move forward with transplant after having a long discussion with the recipient. And the case went well. The patient was in the hospital for about a week and and went home and, and has had a good outcome so far. So this is an example of how... There are livers that, that do have a higher risk, but actually quantifying the individual risks is important and trying to give every potential graft a chance and trying to utilize everything we can. So this was a liver that was about two and a half hours away and was a little bit older and coming from a patient with diabetes. So in this case, we would really want to get this liver in fast, and one of the major risks was the risk of primary nonfunction if the liver took too long to get to us. So what is high risk? Well, it's basically a donor characteristic that puts the recipient at undue risk for primary nonfunction, which would be our biggest concern, acute kidney injury or needing dialysis after transplant, biliary complications, or getting a, a viral infection from the liver or possibly a cancer from the liver. We know that Donors have effects on recipients. From this landmark paper in 2006 by Dr. Fang, we know that a donor can, can cause undue risk to a recipient, and we have to do our best as transplant surgeons to try to quantify that risk and keep the risk in a reasonable range for our recipients. We also know that the donor pool is worsening, so there's a lot of international and national data showing that donors are, you can see in the, on the lower left, Donors are getting older and older, so the largest, the fastest growing group is the group of donors in the high 50s to the mid 70s. Uh, donors are more often diabetic, more often obese. And you can see on the lower right, this is data from England showing that the number of ideal donors defined as donors under the age of 40, brain-dead donors who are not obese and diabetic is very stagnant, while the number of non-ideal donors is going up and up and up every year. So our, my question today was, how are we doing utilizing these donors in a situation where our donor pool is worsening and the number of people on our list is too long? So today I'm going to talk about our results from 2012 until today using hepatitis C, older donors, and DCD donors, and I'll talk about our outcomes. And then I'll talk a little bit about infectious high risk and those organs and late reallocations within our OPO, so organs that have been orphaned by the initial uh, recipient surgeon and are hard to place and hard to utilize. And then I think we probably won't have time to talk about liver perfusion, but uh, I'm happy to talk about that on the side. So first, hep C positive experience uh, here at UCSF. About 4% of the donors in the country are hep C positive. So our experience since 2012 has been 68 transplants using these donors, about 10 to 12 per year approximately. We have had two patients require retransplant after transplant with a hep C positive donor. Um, one was for difficult to control rejection, and one was for hepatic artery thrombosis. We have one mortality in this group of 68 transplants, and that was for recurrent liver cancer 11 months after transplant. So you can see that our survival, our graft and patient survival with hep C positive donors is excellent, um, better than hep C negative donors for our center, and our hazard ratio is 0.3. So you can see that this 
category that's quote unquote high risk is probably low risk, probably better than the average uh, donor that's hep C negative. Our need for retransplant for hep C negative donors is 2.4% over this period of time, and for hep C positive donors is 2.9%, so um, basically equivalent. So this group of donors is actually an excellent group of donors because these donors tend to be younger. Uh, I'll just briefly touch on our treatment protocol for hep C positive patients after transplant. Donors, uh, patients who receive a hep C positive donor, we try to refer for treatment around one month and we send them to our hep C clinic and they take excellent care of them. On to older donors. We know that the donor pool is worsening. This is international data again, but our data in the United States is very similar. And if you look at this meta-analysis and you ignore the living donor data, you can see that there's a huge range in what people consider an older donor, anywhere from over 45 up into the 70s. And you can also see that there's a big variation in the results that people are finding when they're looking at the analysis of these uh, outcomes. There's a recent paper that describes the national data and displays a, an incremental decrease in allograft survival with every decade uh, of age of the donor. But that paper goes on to define groups of uh, risk factors that if you do not, uh, if you're able to exclude these risk factors, you can then have equivalent survival with um, basically any age donor. So if your cold ischemia time can be nice and short, if your recipient is not too sick, then you can have excellent outcomes with any age donor. And this is basically the way that we think about older donors. So if you look at our experience since 2012, We've done 53 transplants with patients between 60 and 69 years old. We've done 30 transplants with donors over 70 years old. And we've had, in the 60 to 69 group, uh, six deaths and one graft failure requiring retransplant. And in the over 70 group, we've had one retransplant and two deaths. The uh, retransplant was from rejection, and the two deaths were from recurrent liver cancer. So if you look at our survival, the Kaplan-Meier survival curve is excellent. Um, the, you can see that there is a slightly lower survival uh, for the group uh, over 70. But if you look at the hazard ratio of 1.22, that compares very favorably with the national and international literature, which would suggest that for donors over 70, the hazard ratio is somewhere uh, about 1.4 to 1.5. So we think and we feel strongly that if you um, limit donor risk to just one risk category and not add risk categories together, so not using an older donor that has a lot of fat in it, not using an older donor that's going to take a long time and they're going to have a long cold ischemia time, not having a very, very sick recipient, then um, older donors can definitely be used with a reasonable amount of risk. You can see our need for um, retransplant using all, all of our donors over 60 since 2012. Here's our two retransplants, one in 2012 and one in 2014. And this is how we've, part of how we've achieved it. So our cold ischemia times based on age 
are, are um, shorter the older that the donor is. I think we all concentrate on getting those older donors in as fast as possible. So we'll move on to our results with DCD donors. This is national data. I think it's not a surprise to anybody that the graph survival is a little bit lower with DCD donors compared to brain-dead donors. There's definitely a center influence. Some centers are able to use DCD donors more effectively than others. And on the lower right, you can see that the risk of having non-anastomotic biliary strictures, which is one of the primary problems with DCD graphs, is higher than brain-dead donors. So this is these plots are in the back of our mind every time we get an offer for a DCD donor. So since 2012, we've utilized about 60 DCD donors. Our average donor age for a DCD donor is 31 compared to our donor age for a brain-dead donor, which is close to 60. And you can see our cold times in the dark blue for the brain-dead donors and the light blue on the right for our DCD donors. We are always trying to get these donors into the recipient as fast as possible. You can see around 2014 and 2015, some of the cold ischemia times on the DCD side were a little bit higher. We have had some challenges in the SHARE 35 era because so many of our livers now are are coming via airplane. So about 60% or so of our livers now are shipped in as opposed to being local. So it has really pushed our, our cold ischemia limits and we're doing everything we can to try to minimize those cold ischemia times and uh, push things as fast as possible to minimize the risk. And you can see our outcomes from patients who've received DCD donors is... Um, very good, I think what you would expect or better based on the national and international data. And our biliary complication rate after transplant with these donors, there's a anastomotic either leak or stricture rate of about 22%. Um, but those don't really seem to influence um, graft or patient survival because those are generally treatable problems. The issue is really the non-anastomotic strictures, which we have about 14%. But there are patients who do reasonably well with these non-anastomotic biliary strictures. And of the patient in this cohort, there are actually two that are currently stent-free and not having cholangitis. So we don't actually end up retransplanting too many of these patients. And I worked at another center in the UK that used a lot of DCD donors. And they, had, they used about 40% DCD donors. And they had a very similar experience where the patients who had the non-anastomotic biliary strictures didn't require retransplant that frequently. So this is our retransplant data for patients who have had a DCD donor. And only two have gone on to be retransplanted since 2012. So moving on to the infectious high-risk category. This is a confusing one for both uh, transplant providers, patients, and everybody. Um, here's our consent form that describes all the risks that make somebody an infectious high-risk donor. And uh, it can be a bit dizzying, but um, basically what I'm going to try to convey is, is what is the actual risk of transmission from, from an infectious high-risk donor, which is a donor who has had some activities in their life that make them higher risk to have uh, to be able to transmit hepatitis or HIV? What is the actual risk? 
So we asked the committee that uh, reviews the national data um, to try to quantify that risk for us, and they came back and told us that from 2009 to 2015, there have been about 58,000 donors that they evaluated, of which 50,000 were considered not infectious high risk, and about 8,000 were considered infectious high risk. So from the 50,000 donors that were transplanted, there were eight confirmed transmissions of hepatitis C or HIV out of the 50,000 donors with a risk of about one in in 6,000. And that's from patients who were considered not infectious high risk. And if you look at the uh, risk of patients who were actually considered infectious high risk, the risk is a little bit higher, but the, the absolute risk is still one in 1,600. So only five cases out of 8,000 donors where this donor is classified as infectious high risk actually results in a transmission of a virus. The reason that we like these infectious high-risk donors is because they're young. So the donor age averages around 30, and we've been able to take advantage of about 317 of these since 2012 with an average donor age of 30. So when we're considering things, we always think about the risk-benefit ratio. So what is the risk? Well, the risk using an infectious high-risk organ is an absolute risk of about 1 in 1,600 that you'll transmit a virus like hepatitis or HIV. And the benefit, well, the benefit is getting the patient transplanted and the benefit of having a a potentially younger donor. So we're always thinking about risk-benefit, and for us, we think infectious high-risk donors are excellent donors. And then lastly, I wanted to talk about our activity within our OPO, because we feel really strongly that it's very important to interact well with our OPO and with the other transplant centers. So I wanted to find out how we've been doing in our OPO and wondering if we've been putting organs at risk by, by accepting an organ and then turning it down late in the process, which is a way that orphans often get orphaned and then not utilized. Basically, are we being responsible consumers within our OPO? So I asked our OPO for a little bit over a year's worth of data about organ offers and acceptance and utilization. And what I found was that this uh, first graph here is the ability to utilize a liver after a late reallocation. So the accepting team goes to the donor hospital, accepts the organ, starts the donor operation, and then after the operation has started, they say, oh, now we decline the organ. We're no longer going to use it. That means the OPO has to then reallocate the liver to another center, which is very challenging because often the cold time clock has started, the next centers down the line don't have a recipient in the hospital, and for whatever reason, that team has turned down that organ, so it's presumed not to be a perfect organ. So it's, it's a really challenging thing for OPOs to reallocate these organs late. And we have been very good users of these organs in the last year or so. The This is the... Well, the highest volume transplant centers um, utilizing our OPO. So we've used about 15 of these livers in the last year. And if you look at very, very late reallocations, so this is organs that are being turned down 
once they're already out of the donor, once they're already on ice, and sometimes even back at the recipient hospital. This is the number of times a center has turned down organs late in the last year, and you can see that we take a lot of pride in the fact that we haven't turned down a single organ after the donor operation has started. So uh, we take a lot of pride in that, not orphaning any livers and utilizing as much as possible within our OPO. I thought it would just be interesting to kind of look at center size. I didn't want to be naming centers, but um, there's definitely a tendency for the larger, higher volume centers to uh, feel a little bit more comfort utilizing organs that have uh, have a little bit more cold time. And um, the higher volume centers, you know, per per donor operation are orphaning a lot less livers, I think. So I think... I will probably not talk about machine perfusion so that we can stay on time, and I'll give Dr. Curlin the floor in a second. But in summary, from 2012 until today, we've done 660 liver transplants. But 32% of them have been from quote-unquote high-risk organs. And I'm not even talking about infectious high-risk, that 317 organs that are quote-unquote infectious high-risk. We're not even talking about those. For our hep C-positive donors, our older donors, and our DCD donors, our one-year survival is close to 95%. And this is for high-risk organs, not talking about infectious high-risk. So we think of high-risk organs as a really critical organ source to help get patients transplanted. And we're continuously looking at the risk and benefit of each donor and each factor within each donor, not trying, to, trying not to add risks together, but trying to isolate risks and um, keep our patients safe. So we feel that the risk can be mitigated with careful donor and recipient selection. Thank you very much. Um, so, hey, Garrett. Garrett no. So, um, I'd like to make a comment rather than question. So, um, I think this is a really important issue because, <clears throat> particularly in this conference, you know, um, the problem with the, the high-risk donors is that uh, very often patients don't really understand what it's all about, and we have a, a consent process that uh, we discuss with the patient way in advance. But the reason that I think this is very important uh, to discuss about this in the conference is because patients often look to all of you for advice uh, because you have to report with the patients. And uh, the more you understand about the issues here, I think that the, the better we as a group can really do and serve the patients better. Just think about, you know, the, uh, the problem with, you know, dropout from the waiting list for a cancer patient. We are talking about one out of three dropping out, and then taking a high-risk donor, a, a CDC or infectious disease high-risk donor, we're talking about a risk of 1 in 1,600. So I think that we have to balance certain things out. So I think this is a very key point here. And uh, so my second question for, for you, Garrett, is where are we in terms of normal thermic perfusion? Sure. I had about 10 slides prepared, but it um, doesn't look like we're going to have time. But I think the, the big picture is that I think a lot of us thought that normal thermic perfusion was really going to be the end-all, be-all, best way to utilize the most 
quote-unquote marginal organs or fatty, fatty livers or older donors. But I think we've learned a little bit in the last year that possibly a period of hypothermic perfusion prior to normal thermic perfusion is going to be the most gentle on the bile duct and is going to have the best bile duct outcomes. So there isn't currently a device that does hypothermic perfusion and then normal thermic perfusion. But if you had to ask me with not enough data and really no good clinical trial data and no machine that exists that goes from hypothermia to normothermia, I think in 10 years that will be the best. A brief period of hypothermia and then normothermia. John Luke? perspective to people on the total pain on the waiting list that you may be doing a survive a disservice to overall survival on the waiting list thing by rejecting too many livers in that people who just uh, it may be too fatty but it is so it may be from a certain perspective that you lower your donor survival or your graft survival uh, and yet you are benefiting more patients who have more of a chance of getting a liver Right. We try. We, yeah, I mean, the, that's an excellent question. It's basically balancing the risk between the, the patient in front of you who you're getting the liver offer for, for against the other 700 people on the list. And it's a really excellent question. I think um, we, we really think about that a lot. I mean, we get informed every time a patient on our list passes away. So we, uh, we know that patients... Um, are sick on the list, and we really want to shield individual patients from as much risk as possible, but still get as many transplants done as possible. So it, it is a balance for sure. Yeah, thank you. That's a, an excellent summary of the state of, of uh, high-risk donors. My, my question relates to the concern that used to exist with respect to using older donors for hepatitis C positive recipients. Has that abated now that the DAA era has been so successful? Right, that's an excellent question about using uh, older donors in patients with hepatitis C or even older hepatitis C positive donors themselves. Uh, we are starting to use older donors in, in patients with hepatitis C with more confidence, definitely. That limit of 40 years old is no longer true. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.